First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Uh, so he asked me to pray today, and last night I was reading some prayers that I feel like were more eloquent than anything that I would say, so I'm going to, this is not my words, but it resonates with what's going on in my heart. Uh, oh God, I am so fragile. My dreams get broken, my relationships get broken, my heart gets broken, my body gets broken. What can I believe? Except that you will not despise a broken heart, that old and broken people shall yet dream dreams, and that the lame shall leap for joy, the blind see and the deaf hear. What can I believe? Except what Jesus taught, that only what is first broken like bread can be shared, that only what is broken is open to your entry that old wineskins must be ripped open and replaced if the wine of new life is to expand. So I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, that I may have courage to keep trying when I am tired and to keep wanting passionately when I am found wanting. God, I am so frantic. Somehow I've lost my gentleness in a flood of ambition, lost my sense of wonder in a maze of technology, lost my integrity in a shuffle of commercial disguises, Lost my gratitude in a swarm of criticisms and complaints. Lost my innocence in a sea of betrayal and compromises. What can I believe? Except that the touch of your mercy will ease the anguish of my memory. That the tug of your spirit will empower me to help carry now the burdens I have loaded on the lives of others. That the example of Jesus will inspire me to find again my humanity. So I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief that I may have courage to cut free from what I have been and gamble on what I can be and on what you might laughingly do with trembling me for your incredible world. Amen. Adam, thanks. You can actually just stay up there, and if I make a mistake, you can just correct me. <laughs> there we go. Uh, so I got here this morning, and John and I were back in the office before uh, anybody had really shown up and was telling him I had this dream last night. Uh, so, Connie, where are you? Yeah, so you, you do this a lot, and you still get nervous and have these anxious dreams. I had this dream last night that I forgot that we now have a 9 o'clock service. And I was at home at like 9.20, and my phone buzzes, and I didn't even read the text, but it dawned on me. I'm supposed to be at church preaching, and, and so woke up, did not sleep super well last night. Uh, but the thing about that dream is that it reflects the way much of my life is. Um, it, it's a reflection that I don't have it all together. Um, and it's interesting because I'm 42 now. I remember when I was like 23 and graduating from seminary and getting married that uh, my assumption was by the time you were 40, for sure, maybe 35, that that you have life pretty well figured out. Maybe not perfectly, but you've got life pretty well figured out. 
And I don't know if it's from being married or from having kids, but I'm learning more and more that I, I simply don't. Um, and my wife back here, she's going to stand up. I've never done this to her before. This is like, you give, give a guy a microphone. Uh, she, she just turned 40 uh, this past Tuesday, and she will tell you that not only do I not have life figured out, but neither does she. Um, and every day, uh, we're reminded that we don't have life figured out. We lose our patience uh, with each other. We lose our patience with ourselves. Uh, we lose our patience with our kids. And we're just reminded we don't have this thing figured out. And in fact, I, I'm learning that the more I learn, the less I feel like I know. Does anybody else feel that way? And it's kind of a cliche. We say that the more I learn, the less I know. And, and when we hear that cliche, I think we think about it academically, right? I mean, the world's so much bigger than we, than we ever think it is. And the more we learn, the more big the world seems to be, the more there is to learn. But I think that's true, at least for me personally as well. The more I learn about myself, the less I feel like I know. And every moment of healing that I experience just reveals another layer of brokenness within my life. Anybody else feel that? I'm still trying to figure it out. I mentioned to Steph a couple weeks ago, I said, Steph, I'm beginning to figure out that maturity is not having it all figured out. Maturity is figuring out that I don't. And I sat on that for a couple of days and and then I realized uh, that there's even a deeper level to that. And this is the part that really becomes a struggle for me. It's not just that maturity isn't having it all figured out. It's figuring out that you don't. It goes a step further to being okay with that. I'm, I'm not okay with that. I, I still, I live a life of striving, of trying to get everything figured out. And I think for, for too many people and far too often, we think of the Christian life as having it all figured out. If we're going to be Christians, we have to have it all figured out. And if somebody is thinking about being a Christian, the perspective is that Christians have it all figured out, that we strive for this perfect life um, that is, just seems to be unattainable. If, if the Christian life is about having it all figured out and having everything nice and neat and we're living our lives in this perfect sort of way where we never lose patience with our wives or we never lose patience with our kids and we never lose patience with ourselves, that can lead to two different kinds of form of destruction. Uh, the first is that this can lead to a spiritual arrogance. Uh, we, if Christianity is about having life all figured out, then we've got to pretend like we have it all figured out, even though every one of us knows that we don't. And even as we're pretending to have it all figured out, we're also striving for that as well. We're working our tails off, trying to live the perfect life. There's a sense of spiritual arrogance that can come with this perspective. Another one uh, that's the other side of that in some ways is a sense of, of being defeated or hopelessness. And my guess is, because I experience this, my guess is uh, the pews of this church and the pews of churches all across our nation and maybe even the world are filled with people that are living with this sense of hopelessness. Uh, 
We look at the people on our left and our right who are maybe pretending that they have it all figured out because that's what we're supposed to do. We recognize in our own lives that we don't. We begin to be hopeless, and maybe I'm not really a Christian, and uh, maybe God's not really at work within me. And even if we're not sitting in the pew, we've got friends or whatever that, you know, we we share um, the gospel message. And I think so many people reject the gospel message because they think the gospel message is what we've just been talking about, that, well, Christianity is about having it all figured out. It's about having all of the answers. And as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think this is some of what Paul's speaking to here. And I want to explain how that is because Paul's talking about the resurrection. And it's easy to wonder, okay, well, how is that tied to the resurrection? resurrection. But 1 Corinthians 15 is kind of similar to a lot of the rest of the Bible. John was talking about Habakkuk and Song of Songs, and you're wondering, okay, what's going on at this point in the Bible? And even in the New Testament that for for some of us is easier to grasp, there's still cultural significance that's going on in, in which the context of these letters are written that it helps for us to understand, to be able to know what, what Paul's really talking about here. So in the letter to the to the Corinthians, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's writing it in a particular time and in a particular cultural context. And one of the things that's going on in this cultural context is this rise of a, of a philosophy that was beginning to grow at this time. And, and this philosophy was this idea that if you could just gain like a special knowledge or the secret way of living that you could rise above the physical brokenness uh, that all of us see all around us, the hurt and the anxiety and the pain, that, that you could kind of like isolate yourself from those things, that if you could just believe the right things spiritually, that you could escape from the physical world. And so in this philosophy, the idea was that the, the physical world was bad and corrupt and evil, and that the spiritual world was good and wholesome and holy. And so the idea was if you could just believe this right thing, then your soul could, could kind of escape or be freed from the pain and the hurt of the physical world. This uh, philosophy took many forms, I mean, in many variations, but in, in its general sense, it was known as Gnosticism. And the word Gnosticism just comes from a Greek word, Greek root word gnosis, which is spelled G-N-O-S-I-S, it's not important for you to know that, but what gnosis means is it means to know. And so the idea was that if you could just attain this special knowledge, this special sense, that you could free your soul from the pain and the hurt of the physical world. And as I think about that, and I think about what was going on in the cultural, in the cultural context of Corinth, I can't help but think, as I think about kind of the spirituality of our culture, that there aren't a lot of parallels uh, the, the New Age movement, as we call it, it turns out isn't so new, right? That this is an old philosophy that, that you can somehow find this enlightenment and free yourself from the physical pain and anxiety that we experience all around us. It's this idea of escape. But as I read that, I think, gosh, is escape from the physical world really all that we can hope for? That somehow the physical world is to be abandoned and we are to leave it and God's done with it as well and we just want to find a sense of escape. This Gnostic way of thinking that didn't only exist within the culture of Corinth but had begun creeping into the church as well. And in fact, 
many of Paul's letters that he's writing to the churches is in response to, the, to this, this idea of Gnosticism creeping into the church. In fact, Gnosticism was one of the primary earliest heresies within the church, and so many of the letters in the New Testament are being written in response to this because there's consequences to this way of thinking. Uh, the first of that is that the physical world, we begin to view it as bad and corrupt. And uh, I, if you weren't here for the story two weeks ago, I wish you were because Emily did an amazing job of talking about how God created the heavens and the earth and the plants and the trees and the animals and how beautiful it was and how God called it good and that we see God's fingerprints all around creation, that creation may be broken, but it's not beyond redemption. The other thing is that it, it leads to this, uh, to this spiritual arrogance that we talked about. It leads to this striving that if I could just do the right thing or know the right thing. And so for many of us, and I, I'm like this, I'm wired to achieve. I want, I want to perform well. So it's like if I could just read the right book. And so I consume books, right, hoping that if I can just find the right knowledge, if I can just apply the right uh, ideas, if I can just live according to a certain list of rules, everything will be okay. And yet, what Paul's writing about here he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he brings up Adam. Now, when he brings up Adam, it's interesting in, in this passage because if you were here last week, John preached on the passage that immediately precedes this. And if you've got your Bibles open, I would encourage you to just scan it real quick and look for all of the places that you see the word if. And Paul's applying this word if to if the resurrection didn't really happen. It's like, okay, if, there are all of these hypotheticals that he lists out, right? And the consequences of if those hypotheticals are true. But in verse 20, he shifts, and he goes from speaking about hypotheticals to speaking about certainties. And one of the certainties that he lists is that because of Adam, all of us will die, that, that there's no escaping death for any of us. Because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, and Adam and Eve and all of humanity choosing for themselves what was going to be right and wrong, that death is a consequence that we all experience. And as I think about Paul bringing that up, I, I think about this, first of all, none of us will escape death. Uh, Paul's speaking that with certainty. But I also think about this. If the brokenness of the world, the pain, the anger, the anxiety that all of us would like to escape from, if all of that is the consequence of man being in charge, how foolish and arrogant is it of us to think that somehow we can fix it? The anxiety, the hurt, the brokenness that all of us experience comes from within us. And so it doesn't matter what we know or it doesn't matter what we do, that continues to live there. We can't escape it. And if what Paul says about Adam is true, if none of us will escape death and there's nothing that we can do on our own, then what this drives us to is that we are in desperate need of a Savior. And so Paul moves on to speak about Christ and speaks about Jesus' bodily resurrection, standing as, standing as the first fruits for us of what is yet to come. I was talking to Eric English. He was uh, here in the early service, and his son is uh, 16 and uh, is really into farming. And 
so was talking this morning about this idea of first fruits. And the first fruits for a farmer, this was like kind of the first pick of crop that they would have. Um, so uh, some farmers are probably ready to do that now, um, even if the weather isn't, right? But they would pick these first, this first uh, crop, and if that first crop looked really good, they would know that for the rest of the season that their crops would be abundant. It was known as the first fruits. They would bring the first fruits, and these were evidence of what was yet to come and the season. And so Christ's resurrection for us stands up as the first fruits of what we can expect for ourselves. It speaks of what is to come. And so we look forward to a time when Christ returns and we fully experience resurrection, that there's a newness of life that we experience now, but but what Paul's saying here is there's something that we hope for, that Christ is raised as a first fruits, and then us when Christ returns. Paul's message is simply this. Death will not have the final word that God will. And while we wait for that, until then, we have this taste of what that newness of life is like. We have this taste of what hope is like and what it means to live with love and to be loved. But these are just the first fruits. We wait for the final resurrection when Christ returns and sets not only us, but all of creation where it's supposed to be. So as we read 1 Corinthians 15, I, I think it's always important, it's good for us to kind of understand what's going on in the text, but what does that mean for us? What do we take to our daily lives as we go home at 1230 or as we wake up tomorrow morning and begin our weeks? What does this mean for us? I think it means first this, our hope is not in having things all figured out. We should be free of this way of thinking. Our hope is not in having things all figured out. Our hope is ultimately, and our utter dependence is on the grace of God. We are going to fail. I'm going to wake up tomorrow, and I'm going to mess up. My utter dependence is on God. I, I, I've spent so much of my life striving to be the person that God's called me to be, and what I'm learning now is that God calls me to abide in him. And I've certainly heard that before, but I'm not sure I've ever fully understood what it meant. And so as I read this passage, there's this sense of recognizing, gosh, not only do I not have it all together, and I need to be okay with that, but God is as well. And God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross because he knew I didn't. And that my call is to abide, to rest in him. It doesn't mean that I live passively, but it means that I live surrendered. Give up striving and seek to abide in him. Our hope's not in having things all figured out. So if you're here this morning and you recognize, gosh, I don't have life figured out. I mess up on a daily basis. You're in good company because everybody else sitting in the pews is in the exact same place you are. Number two, we should be humble. If, if our salvation and our redemption is ultimately dependent on God's grace, then we should be humble. We don't have to have it all figured out, and we don't have to pretend like we do. And in those moments when we begin to feel like we're spiritually superior to the person next to us, it's a good indication that it's time for us to repent. And not just individually, but collectively as well. As we talk together about being a church, about being a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things, if there comes a point where 
uh, not only individually, but collectively, we begin to gain this air of spiritual superiority, it's time for us to repent. If we feel that we're somehow superior to this church or that church, it's time for us to repent. We are to be humble because we are as utterly dependent on God's grace as everybody else. And the thing is, is we can hear this and we can think, well, gosh, this is kind of defeating, right? I I don't have it all figured out. I may not ever have it all figured out. And that can feel defeating. But again, what I'm learning is that this is actually quite hopeful. Uh, There's hope in the restlessness that we feel. As we look at our lives and we recognize, gosh, I don't have it all figured out. I feel like there's supposed to be something more. This speaks to the fact that God's not yet done with us. And I think there's great hope in that. In that, Paul wrote another letter where he's kind of talking about these same ideas about resurrection. He wrote a letter to uh, the church in Rome. And in that, he's got this chapter. Uh, there's many chapters. Romans such a great book, uh, as is 1 Corinthians. But he's got this great chapter, uh, chapter 8 in Romans. And he's kind of touching on this idea that we're talking about here, and he's touching on this restlessness and this hope that we have but we have not yet fully experienced. And he writes this in Romans 8, verses 23 through 25. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of of our bodies. There's this sense of what we're already experiencing, that the Holy Spirit has already come within us and we're already experienced the first fruits, right? We're experiencing the first fruits of hope and of love and of forgiveness and of grace, but there's something that we continue to wait for, for this complete adoption and sonship and the redemption of our bodies. And he goes on, for in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The newness of life that we begin to experience, it's, it's not complete. The newness of life that you're experiencing isn't complete, but it's a hint, it's a taste, it's a first fruit of what's to come. And so as we think about that, the question that I ask myself is, okay, so does that mean that I should just live passively, that I should just sit back and what's going to happen is going to happen? But as I I thought about that, I think what Paul would would say to us is that we are to participate in the first fruits of the renewal of creation precisely because we anticipate the fullness of redemption of creation when God eliminates all the other powers and authorities. The reason we are to participate with God in the present is because we anticipate the fullness of what he will accomplish. As we talk about being a church that is shaped by the gospel, a community that's shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things, this is what this speaks to, that we are to live with and live out the first fruits of what God's doing in our lives so that we can speak hope and love and grace to a world that's broken and knows it's broken and needs hope. And in doing so, we point forward to what God promises in the life to come. Let's pray together. Father, we come humbly to you, Father, because when we're honest with ourselves, we recognize our deep need for a Savior. 
Father, as we peel away the layers, we realize that we're more broken than we ever could have imagined. And yet, God, you love us more than we could ever hope for. And so, Father, as we gather together as a church, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, Father, give us the strength to quit pretending to be people that we're not. Father, that you give us the strength to confess that we don't have it all together. Father, that you give us the strength to be okay with that. Father, that you give us the strength to humbly turn towards you. Father, thank you that while we were yet sinners, not because we had it all together, but precisely because we were sinners, you died for us. Father, that proves your love for us. God, it proves your love for your creation as well. Father, as we take communion, I pray that that would be ever-present in our minds, that we would come humbly, confessing that we don't have it all together, accepting the salvation that you offer us, and hoping for what is to come. So we give you this time. Thank you for being present with us and inviting us to your table. Amen.